0: <laughs> we appreciate that, but appreciate all the hospitality. I've got a very powerful message for you. It's, it's for everyone this morning. Sometimes you get into a topic that might not be your thing. This is for everyone. Uh, James 1.19 says be slow to speak, but it doesn't say speak slow. So I'm going to go fast. We're going to cover a lot. It's not about memorizing everything. It's just about walking away with the idea that you can trust the Bible from cover to cover. We're going to be looking at some scientific evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. There are other categories of evidences as well. And since most of you don't know me from a hole in the ground, I'm going to go over my background just very, very briefly. Uh, That's me, and that's a hole in the ground. So so you can see there are a few differences. I just put that up there to warn you about my dry sense of humor you have to tolerate for a little bit. Um, But I was raised in a Christian home, and you can see very clearly that that is a Christian home. (laughs) <laughs> and I was taught to believe the Bible from cover to cover. I went to public schools all the way through high school. I was still very strong in my faith. Graduated and went to a Christian college John Brown University in Arkansas to study mechanical engineering. Got a degree, but then I became more interested in physics. They didn't have a physics major, so I left there, went back to Wisconsin where I'm from, and went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get a physics degree. And that's when my world changed quite a bit going from a small Christian college where my engineering professors opened up every class in prayer to a large state university where my physics professors did not open up in prayer. I mean, maybe they forgot, I don't know. Uh, But they were all evolutionists, and some of them were atheists, and they were telling me that everything I believed was wrong. And that made me very uncomfortable to be surrounded by these Ph.D. scientists who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed, But I realized for the first time in my entire life that even though I knew what I believed, I really didn't know why. How did I know that God existed? How did I know the creation account was scientifically valid? How did I know there was a worldwide flood? How did I know Jesus was the Son of God? How did I know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? I was raised to believe all those things, and I did believe them. I just couldn't defend it. So God put it on my heart to start looking into things. So I've been researching and speaking now for 37 years on the topics and about 16 years ago, felt led into full-time ministry, founded the Starting Point Project, traveling around the country, been in eight other countries as well, talking about evidence for the Christian worldview. Along the way, I was also invited to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. It's probably the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians and creationists. The founding member, Dr. John Sanford from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented something called the gene gun. inserts genes into the DNA. He's worldwide famous for that. He was an atheist for most of his life. But he's a very strong Christian now, a very humble man as well. Then there's Dr. John Baumgartner. He's a Ph.D. geophysicist. He just happened to build the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. <laughs> just off the charts brilliant. So those two guys, myself and a few other board members. And as smart as these guys are, and they are brilliant, if they were here this morning, they would be the first to admit, out of all six board members, I am the tallest. <laughs> so pretty proud of that. Um, I just like hanging around them because they're doing cutting-edge science, and I get to take it and translate it into something we call English, so that it makes sense and you can understand it. But just uh, kind of an honor to be associated with them. But back to this talk, we're going to be looking at scientific evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. And as I travel around, ask Christians a certain question. Ask them, why are you a Christian? And they'll often say, well, because I believe the Bible. Okay, makes sense. Why do you believe the Bible? Well, because I'm a Christian. (laughs) But why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Because I'm a Christian. And round and round. But how do you know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? I, I just know. I mean, I, it says it is. That's what I believe. I, I feel it. Great. Why should anyone else believe it? Because you feel it, including your own children or grandchildren. If we don't go any further than that, we pretty much just have a blind faith, and there's no reason anyone else should believe it. So we need to go a little bit further, and that's what we're going to do in this presentation. I'm going to play a short radio interview for you. A p- portion of one. It's about a minute long. Here's the background. This program is hosted by an atheist. It's his program. The caller is a pastor, and they're talking about the existence of God. So I'm going to play it for you, and then we'll discuss it.
1: So you disagree because you're, you're convinced, probably because of Romans 1, that everybody knows that God exists? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you believe Romans 1? Uh, because it's the Bible. Okay, why do you believe the Bible? I wasn't necessarily prepared for that particular question. Um, you're a preacher and I mean, you're not prepared for a question on why you believe the Bible? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just, I mean, this, this to me is like the, the basics. What, what, why would anybody believe? Why, would I, why should I care what the Bible the, has to the reason The reason why I'm not prepared for that particular question is because you didn't answer what I had to say. Uh, I'm, I'm point sorry, I, 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 I might have missed a question. What was the question? Because all I heard was you saying you disagreed. Uh, I was trying to make a point to you. It wasn't necessarily a question. My point was... Well, then how can you accuse me of not knows. answering your question if you didn't ask a question? Uh, your point you is that everybody knows that God exists, and I don't agree with that. And I'm asking you to prove that it's true. It's not about proving that it's true. You're, then, you you're, you we can are never are, prove that it's true. It's then then we are in an impasse. And thank you for acknowledging that you can never prove it's true, which demonstrates it's irrational. I'm going to have to ask you to call back because we've run out
0: of time. Okay, let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, that'd be kind of depressing. Um, I actually think that atheist host was very gracious. And I think most pastors would have a better response. But here's a bigger question for you this morning what would your response have been had you called in the radio program and the host asked you that this is where i often get the deer in the headlights looks like i i don't know help And so the rest of this talk is going to be discussing what should our response be when skeptics like that atheist ask very reasonable questions if i was an atheist i'd ask you know how do you know god exists and how do you know the bible is inspired word of god and too many christians we fumble around with that as if we've never thought about it before rather than having a nice, succinct answer and can give them more details if they want it. So, I have a quiz for you before we get any further. I'm going to put a passage up on the screen, see if you can tell where it's from. And the Messiah cometh forth in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil. Some people say, is that uh, like Isaiah? Nope. Uh, Jeremiah? Nope. It's not Psalms, is it? No. Here's the answer. It comes from 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 26. You're like, second what? It's the Book of Mormon. It's like, oh, that's weird. But here's the question for you. How do you know the Book of Mormon is not the inspired word of God? Well, it's not. How do you know it's not? Because the Bible is. How do you know the Bible is? Because I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. What about the Book of Mormon? It's not. Why is it not? Because the Bible is. And round and round mormons believe that it's inspired by god right on the cover says it's another testament of jesus christ given by the angel moroni written on golden tablets an interesting story Uh, not here to pick on mormonism this is just one example there's no shortage of religious books out there here's just a small sampling how do you know which of those are the inspired word of god maybe they all are maybe none of them are maybe just two which two how would you know a few years ago, there was a debate at the University of Wisconsin between a Christian and an atheist. topic was, would the world be better off without religion? A friend of mine asked if I would go to the debate with him. I said, sure, I'll go, but I, I would never actually be part of that debate. He said, why not? He said, because I'm, I'm not a religious person. He said, what are you talking about? You Traveling around the world, talking about God and the Bible and Jesus and creation. Here's why I say that. I think that religion is man's idea of God. The reason we have so many different religions is there are so many different people, and they all have have their own idea of who God is, why he created us, and what he wants from us. I'm not really that interested in finding out what absolutely everyone else thinks about God. On the other hand, I think the Bible is God's idea of God, (laughs) and that fascinates me to no end. And while I say I'm not a religious person, I am a Christian, and I believe the Bible from cover to cover. Now, I realize that Christianity is considered to be one of the world's religions. So, in that sense, okay, I guess I'm a religious person, but I like to make the distinction between man's idea of God and God's idea about himself, which makes it more important for us to know how do we know the Bible truly is God telling us about himself and not just some other people writing a bunch of stuff and saying, here's another religious option for you. Now, How many of you actually have a book at home that was signed by the author? A few of you, the rest of you can buy my books, I'll sign them. Um, It's kind of neat. You can get the books out and say, hey, you know, look, you know, I met the author. Wouldn't it be neat if you had an autographed copy of the Bible? Kind of makes your head spin thinking about that. I actually think we do. I think God's signature is all over his word. But how would we know? Well, there are four basic tests you can apply to any religious writing out there to see if it shows evidence of being inspired by God. These are not special Bible tests. These are tests you can apply to any book out there to see, is it really giving us evidence that it was actually written by God? First, we have internal consistency. Does the book you're looking at, whatever it is, does it contradict itself? If it does, that's good evidence God didn't write that because he wouldn't contradict himself. Then we have historical accuracy. Does the book you're looking at get history wrong? If it does... Good evidence, God didn't write that. He would know history. Then we have prophetic accuracy. If the book you're looking at makes predictions about the future and they've been proven false, good evidence, God didn't write that. He would know the future. And then we have scientific accuracy. If the book you're looking at makes statements that can actually be tested by science and it's been proven false and we can all see that, that's probably pretty good evidence God didn't write that because God would know science. With the time we have, we're just going to focus on that last one, scientific accuracy, which we also call scientific foreknowledge. And here's the point. The Bible was written a long time ago. The Old Testament roughly 1500, about 400 B.C. And the New Testament roughly about 50, 40 or so to about 100 A.D., long before we had microscopes and telescopes. But we're discovering there are things in the Bible that we know now are scientifically accurate. And the scientists are thinking, there's no way those guys could have known that So long ago. And that's true. They could not have known that on their own. Which is evidence they must have been inspired by God to write those things or they would have gotten most of them wrong. So that's what we're going to take a look at. Here's an interesting quote from Bill Nye, the science guy. You're probably familiar with him. I actually think he's a pretty gifted speaker. And when he's talking to youth about electricity and magnetism, I think he does a great job. But when he's talking about events that happened in the distant past when no one was around to see it, like the origin of the universe, the origin of life, I think his views are way off. He's no friend of Christianity. This is what he said. I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world, in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine, but don't make your kids do it because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can... We need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems. So what's he saying? He's saying if you as an adult want to believe in this fairy tale of creation, I guess that's okay, and reject evolution, you can do that. But please do not make your kids do that. Because if your children and grandchildren do not believe in evolution, they won't be able to do science or engineering. They won't be able to land on Mars someday or cure all these diseases. You you cannot do science if you don't believe in evolution. Now, Bill Nye, uh, he's not a scientist, he's an engineer, but he's a pretty intelligent guy, and he's entitled to his opinion. I'm going to give you a quote from someone else who actually is a scientist, and not a Christian, but he's Dr. Mark Kirshner. He's the founding chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School. You can't be too dumb and have that position. This is what he said. In fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution. Molecular biology, biochemistry, physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. What's he saying? He's saying these men and women do their jobs all day long, totally independent of whether or not they believe in evolution. It has nothing to do with that. And I think he's in a better position to comment on that, and I would agree with that comment. The truth is, most major areas of science we have today were founded by Bible-believing Christians. Science owes its origins to Christianity. If you'd like a few examples, I brought a few along. Antiseptic surgery, bacteriology, calculus, chemistry, computer science, electronics, electrodynamics, electromagnetics, fluid mechanics, galactic astronomy, gas dynamics, genetics, hydraulics, hydrostatics, oceanography, optical mineralogy, paleontology, pathology, physical astronomy, stratigraphy, thermodynamics, thermokinetics, vertebrae paleontology, and the scientific method, all founded by Bible-believing Christians. Anyone who says no real scientist believes the Bible, they don't only not understand science, they don't even know history. This is where science came from, was birthed out of the Christian community. Not only is belief in evolution not required to do science, belief in evolution actually gets in the way of doing good science. It's a hindrance. Here's one example, something called vestigial organs. These are things in our body that are supposedly leftover remnants of evolutionary history. They're not doing anything anymore, they used to. Here's a quote from Jerry Coyne, one of the leading evolutionists at the University of Chicago. He said, we humans have many vestigial features proving that we evolved. The most popular is the appendix. Our appendix is simply the remnant of an organ that was critically important to our leaf-eating ancestors, but is of no real value to us. Proof of evolution. In fact, scientists used to have a list of 86 things in your body that don't do anything. I used to, not anymore. That would be evidence of evolution. God would not design you so that you had 86 things that don't do anything. Well, this was actually even used in the famous Scopes trial, 1925. Evidence of evolution, 86 things. Scientists have studied those things and they've dwindled that list down a bit. Yeah, down to zero. <laughs> they have found a use for every single one of those things, including the appendix. It's part of the immune system. It has a function. Doctors are very hesitant to take your appendix out now. Now, if it's going to burst, you might need to take it out of there. But it's doing something. Can you live without your appendix? Yes, you can. Many people do. Can you live without your arms? Yeah, you can. doesn't mean they don't do anything. It just means you can maybe get by without them. So again, belief in evolution just said rip it out. It's not doing anything anyway. Or as a creationist would say years ago, we might not fully understand this thing, but we believe it was designed by God. Let's study it further. And when we did, we found out its use. Here's another example, the concept of junk DNA. When scientists were studying DNA, it seemed like only 2% of our DNA did anything, coded to make proteins that carry out all the functions in our body. The other 98% it's junk, not doing anything. Well, they studied it further. Now they know the 98% they were calling junk it's actually more complex than the 2%. It's instructions telling the 2% what to do. It is blowing them away. I have an entire talk just on DNA. But well, it was belief in evolution to got them to just write it off. God wouldn't design you so that 98% of your DNA didn't do anything. Creationists would say, let's study this further. We believe it was designed by God. It produced better science. Here's an evolutionist. He said the failure to recognize the implications of non-coding DNA, that's what they were calling junk, It will go down as the biggest mistake in the history of molecular biology. (laughs) Big, big mistake to ever call that junk. But it was called junk because of the belief in evolution. But then people say, yeah, but the Bible's not a science textbook. And I would completely agree with that. It's not. And I'm glad it's not, because then it would be even harder to understand. Fewer people would read it, and more importantly, it would have to be corrected and updated constantly like science textbooks. So much has changed since I got my degree in physics because I keep discovering new things. Okay, I guess we were wrong about that, but now we know it's this. Oh, Okay, I guess that's wrong too, but now we know it's this. And it's just the nature of science. We keep updating our views. But even though the Bible is God's first shot at writing a book, I think he did a pretty good job. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be corrected and updated continually like science textbooks. So the Bible is not a science textbook, but what it does is it provides a framework for us to properly understand science. Because facts don't speak for themselves. Every fact you've ever heard or ever will hear has to be interpreted to give it any kind of meaning. And the way you interpret facts is by using what you already believe to be true, your framework, your starting point, your worldview. You use what you already believe to look at facts and say, this is what I think about those facts. And the Bible provides a phenomenal framework and in fact, it provides the only accurate framework to properly understand science. The Bible does comment on astronomy. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, where the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God is the one who created this universe and his fingerprints are all over it. But secular astronomers, they'll look up at the sky and they'll say, see these swirling gases? That's the birth of a star. It's so beautiful. We're seeing the birth of a star. You know what they're seeing? swirling gases. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to understand gravity wants to pull these particles together to form a star. Yes, gravity wants to do that. I know the formula for it. But the closer these particles get together, the more gas pressure you have. Gas pressure is much stronger than gravity. They won't pull together. Okay, that's true, but what happened is there was a star here that exploded that pushed these particles together. Okay, i got a question. Where did this star come from? Well, oh, you see, that was... Swirling gases and a star over here exploded. pushed those gases together. <laughs> i got another question. Do you have any idea what it might be? Where'd that star come from? You know, they can't get the process started. The laws of physics mitigate against star formation. That's just one problem. Then Jeremiah 33, 22, As a host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant. Jeremiah, writing over 2,500 years ago, said the stars are uncountable. That made no sense to him. See, he could look up at the night sky and see about the same stars we see, which is about 3,000. From any point on the earth, you can look up, nice clear night, you could see about 3,000 stars. That's a lot of stars, but it's not uncountable. So why would Jeremiah look at a limited number of stars and say they're uncountable? It's like me saying, oh, the chairs in the sanctuary here are uncountable. There's a lot of chairs here, but you could count them. Well, today we know modern astronomy they're uncountable they're guessing 10 trillion trillion they don't really know they just know it's a massive number just like jeremiah said before he had a telescope today we have telescopes the hubble telescope is one example um, astronomers wonder about the universe they wonder is it pretty much the same everywhere we look or are there some areas where there's almost nothing and other areas where there's lots of stars and galaxies and all that so they took the hubble telescope and they have this the Hubble deep field. And they focused it on one part of the sky. That's one twenty-four millionth of the whole thing. Tiny, tiny spot in orange there. Focused the telescope there. Left the aperture open to see if anything would develop. It looked really dark, like maybe there's not anything there. This is what developed in that space. Three thousand stars. But guess what? Those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. Three thousand galaxies, each of which probably has a hundred billion stars in it, in one area of the sky. That's only one twenty-four millionth of the whole thing. Three thousand galaxies. Then they have the Hubble Extreme deep field. This is one thirty two millionth of the sky, a smaller portion. Focus the telescope there. They discovered five and a half thousand galaxies, each of which has probably a hundred billion stars. And then they have, the more recently, the Hubble legacy field. They discover 265,000 galaxies, each of which probably has 100 billion stars in it. Are the stars uncountable? Yeah, just like Jeremiah said when he didn't even have a telescope. The Bible talks about geology. Today, a skeptic or an atheist can go to the Grand Canyon and see there are many layers in the earth. It's just a fact. Christian can go to the same place and see there are many layers in the earth. That's just a fact. How the layers got there, that's a different question because the atheist wasn't there to see them being deposited, but neither was the Christian. So we have to try to figure out why, why are we seeing these layers all over the planet? The Bible gives us a framework for that. Genesis chapter 6, verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it will perish. Everything on earth will perish. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, there was a worldwide flood. Okay, if that was really true, what would we expect to see? We should expect to see sedimentary layers that were laid down by water catastrophically all over the planet, and we'd probably see lots of fossils in them too, because creatures that were living would have gotten buried. Guess what? We see these sedimentary layers all over the planet, laid down catastrophically by water, And they're filled with billions and billions and billions of fossils. (laughs) The Bible gives us a framework to properly understand that. Uh, At the end, I I actually lead Grand Canyon tours. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. It's fascinating. We don't go there just to see a big hole in the ground. We go to show you further evidence. You can trust the Bible cover to cover, even the, quote, silly flood story. Grand Canyon is probably one of the best places on the planet where you can go and actually see these evidences. There was a worldwide flood. You can trust everything that the Bible says. The Bible gives us a framework to properly understand biology. Nehemiah 9.6, you give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God's fingerprint is all over living things as well. Today we have something called the law of biogenesis, which states that life only and always comes from pre-existing life. It's so consistent, we made a law out of it. We've never, ever seen anything violate that. You see something living, it came from something else that was living. So why do we teach in every public school and every state university, 3.8 billion years ago, non-living dead chemicals came together to form a living cell? I love that story. There's just no evidence for it. The more we look at chemistry and biochemistry and all that, Chemicals are not going to come together, self-assemble, and create a living cell that could reproduce itself and turn itself into every other life form on this planet. That's what evolution teaches. The science does not support that. I have many other talks where I go into a lot more details. It's interesting, here's an evolutionist. He said, the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living chemicals, a matter, is simply a matter of faith. Wait a minute, scientists don't have faith. They're in the laboratory proving things, right? no he's admitting they have faith that that happened and not only is it a faith it is a blind unreasonable faith because it goes totally against everything that we're learning in science genesis 124 and god said let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds 10 times in genesis chapter 1 god says he created creatures to reproduce after their kind Can they produce a variety? Oh, yeah, nice variety, but always within limits, within the kind of life that they are. In fact, today, dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves can all breed together. Look at them. They look very similar because they're the same general kind of animal. You can breed a dog and a wolf, and you get a wolf-dog. Looks a little bit like the dog, a little bit like the wolf. This is good science. We see this all the time. This is what we would expect from Genesis. They can create a variety, but always within distinct limits. You can't breed a dog and a wolf and get an ostrich. (laughs) They don't have genetics to make beaks and feathers. So yes, you can get a nice variety, but always within limits. And that's what we're discovering over and over in biology. Variety, but always within limits. Leviticus 17.11. This is a great one. The life of the flesh is in the blood. We know blood is very, very important for life. In fact, every human red blood cell contains about 270 million molecules of hemoglobin that carries oxygen through your body. Very critical. If you had a slight amount less, you'd be dead. The reason I mention that is doctors used to drain blood out of people's bodies when they got sick. That's largely how George Washington died. He got pneumonia. Goes to the doctor. This guy's sick. We've got to get that bad blood out of him. So they drain some blood. He got sicker. It's like wow he's really sick they drained some more blood he got even sicker was like wow this guy is so sick we need to drain some more blood they ended up draining almost a gallon of blood out of him and he died today we know better scientifically if they would have taken scripture seriously they would have never done that in fact the reason i have a barber pole up there on the screen is you used to be able to go to the barber to have your blood drained they called it bloodletting so they would give you a cylinder like that to grasp <clears throat> cut your arm drain some blood and then wrap a towel around your arm to stop the bleeding and absorb some of the blood. Sometimes they would take used towels and hang them on the cylinder outside to dry. Sometimes the wind would catch it and it would wrap around the pole. That's why today barber poles have red stripes. Seriously, free trivia. I won't charge you for that one, but next time you see a barber pole, think about what you're learning here. <clears throat> and this is one of my all-time favorites here. Exodus 15, 26. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, I will put none of these diseases upon thee. Okay, what's going on here? Here's the backdrop. God creates everything. It's perfect. Creates Adam and Eve. They're perfect. They sin, disobey God. They get kicked out of the garden. That brings death and a curse into God's perfect creation. God could have smashed them and started over. But he said, no, I love them too much. I got a plan. In the entire Old Testament is God playing out that plan, which was for God to send his son the Messiah to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. And that also included God choosing a group of people through which his son would come. The Hebrew people who became the Israelites and the Jews. Those are God's chosen people. That's the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is also Satan, who hates God, trying to ruin that plan. The entire Old Testament is Satan trying to wipe out the Jews because if he can, the plan's done. The Messiah can't come. So that's the entire Old Testament. Satan trying to wipe them out and God trying to protect his people. In this passage, Moses is saying, listen to the health practices that God is giving us and we won't see the diseases that are affecting the nations around us. But we know from the book of Acts that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He went to Egypt You Today, if someone goes to a state university, get a PhD, and then they write some books, You would expect that a lot of the information in those books would come from what they learned at the university. That's just kind of how it works. Well, Moses goes to Egypt, you, and then he writes five books. Yeah, the first five books of the Bible. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? We should have. Moses made it up on his own, and that's what skeptics claim. Moses was an ignorant goat herder, scribbled some stuff down, and now we got another religious book. Well, let's take a look at Egyptian wisdom. This is the Ebers Papyrus written about 1550 B.C. contains over 800 magical formulas and remedies for things, one of which is if you got a splinter, you're supposed to apply worm blood and donkey dung. <clears throat> Modern scientists say, yikes, you don't want to do that. It causes tetanus spores. You can get lockjaw. You can get very sick. You could even die. That's the kind of stuff Moses was educated in. So do we see things like that in the Bible? We should if Moses made it up on his own. Here's an example of what we actually see. Moses talked about touching a dead body. Now today we know about bacteria and germ theory. You don't want to touch a dead animal. You could get sick from that. You could maybe even die. This is what Moses said about touching a dead animal. This is Numbers chapter 19. Whoever touches a dead body he want will be unclean for seven days must wash themselves in the water of purification on the third day and the seventh day, and then he'll be clean. Okay, what's this water of purification he mentioned? A few verses earlier, he tells us, the priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet wool, and throw them on the burning heifer or cow. That sounds bizarre. Many of you are old enough to remember the Beverly hillbillies. It sounds like something granny would come up with in the kitchen, and put some possum in there and stir it around. She was always doing weird things. That's what this Bible passage sounds like, just weird things that Moses made up. Modern scientists have looked at that and they say, that's not weird at all. That's really interesting and here's why. The cedar wood and the burning cow ashes combine to make lye. That's a caustic soda. We call it soap. (laughs) You touch a dead body, washing with soap would be a good thing. The hyssop plant converts into thiamol. That's isopropyl alcohol. kills bacteria. You touch a dead body, killing bacteria would come in handy. The scarlet wool forms a gritty substance like an SOS pad in your kitchen, or if you ever use orange goop, it has pumice in it. It's abrasive. It can help get that stuff out of there. And then applying it on the third and the seventh day, bacteria grow very well in a damp environment. So you want to wait a few days for it to dry out a bit, and then you apply this. Wait a few more days for it to dry out, and you apply it a second time, and you're considered clean. Modern scientists say that is a great natural remedy if you don't have antibiotics that we create today. Did Moses know anything about bacteria and germ theory and isopropyl alcohol? Obviously not. This is God saying, hey Mo, (laughs) I want you to write some stuff down. So he writes it down, and then Moses says, that was awesome, you got anything else? And God says, let me think. Yeah, yeah, I got one more. So as I wind down, I'm going to give you one more example. Moses talked about a certain Jewish tradition in Genesis 17. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight, days old must be circumcised why did moses say the eighth day could have said anything could have said the third week the fifth year could have said anything but he said the eighth day modern scientists have discovered some very fascinating things about blood clotting there are two major elements in your blood that are necessary to clot your blood you don't have them you can get a paper cut and bleed to death a vitamin k and prothrombin On a molecular level, you've got about two dozen events that have to occur in proper sequence to clot your blood. You miss one, you're dead. Event A has to happen first, which triggers event B. B triggers C, C triggers D on down the line. How did that evolve? By accident, over millions and millions of years? Some creature has event A by accident. Great, doesn't do anything. Gonna bleed to death, can't reproduce. What if it had A, A, B, and C? Great, doesn't do anything. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, doesn't do anything. A, B, D, C, D, E, F, G, H, R, R, W, Z. No, two dozen in a row right from the beginning. That can't evolve. That's a design feature. On the larger scale, vitamin K and prothrombin, scientists have discovered vitamin K develops in a newborn somewhere between days five and seven. That's when it kicks in. Prothrombin looks like this if we graph it, and I will explain the graph. The line across the top is the normal level of prothrombin in your body. The numbers is along the bottom, are days after birth. Scientists have discovered on day one, a baby has about 90% of its prothrombin. Pretty high, that's not bad. But then it drops dangerously low between days two and five down to only 30%. That's not good. On day eight, it spikes to 110% of its normal level. It will never be that high again the rest of your entire life. Only on day eight. So if you are a baby and you need a surgical procedure done, day 8 would be the perfect day because for sure you have vitamin K by then and you have more prothrombin you'll never have the rest of your life. Did Moses know anything about vitamin K and prothrombin? Obviously not. God said, Mo, write it down. He writes it down. Quick side note, Amy and I have two children. They're 25 and 26 now. But before our son was born, we went to the hospital to go through the birthing classes. This was all new to us. So the nurse says, you know, if you have a baby boy and you'd like this procedure done, we'll take him down the hall and bring him back. I remember, clear as day, sitting there being very nervous, thinking, shouldn't we come back on day eight? But I was so shy, I didn't want to say anything. The nurse continued teaching, and someone else raised her hand and said, hey, nurse, you just said you're giving the baby a shot. baby's just born, why does it need a shot right away? She goes, oh, that's vitamin K. So today, they artificially introduce vitamin K immediately, so now you have that on day one, and you have 90% of your prothrombin. It's not a problem. certainly isn't a moral issue. My hand, all on its own, went up in the air. I didn't even want it to, but it went up in the air. She called on me, and I shared with the whole class what Moses wrote in the book of Genesis about all this. I don't know if they were impressed by it, but it was an opportunity to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. So the Bible actually passes this test of scientific foreknowledge. In fact, it passes all four tests of internal consistency, historical accuracy, prophetic accuracy, and scientific accuracy. So do Christians have faith that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Yes, we do. But it's an incredibly reasonable faith backed up by so much evidence. In fact, if you want to believe that the Bible is not the inspired Word of God, in the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, you've got a lot of splaining to do. How do you get 40 different authors right in three different continents in three different languages over a 1,600-year period covering hundreds of controversial topics? How do they all agree with each other? Over 8,000 passages in the Bible are prophetic. That's about 27% of the Bible's prophetic in nature. How did the writers become 100% accurate with their prophecies? And on and on and on. How, how do you explain that if it's not really inspired by God? So yes, we have faith and there's so much evidence that we can share with people as to why we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I have a five-part series on our table over there. Uh, just one of the many DVDs where I go through all four areas and some background information about all of this. And the point isn't to memorize all this so that you can go out and win arguments with people and make them look foolish. Not at all. The point is to strengthen your faith to make you more confident and emboldened when you go out and turn and graciously share the gospel message. Don't start arguing evidences and all that. Share the gospel message knowing if they ask you tough questions, how do you know that God exists? What about all the violence in the Bible? What about all the evil in the world today? What about the supposed contradictions and errors in the Bible? What about the creation? What about the flood? You know there are answers. Even if you just think, man, this guy came to our church and he said something about blood clotting, I think. (laughs) That's okay. You can get back to them with an answer. But share the gospel message. And the more upside down the world is, I don't know if it can get any worse, probably, but the crazier things get, the easier it should be. Not to fix the world, we can't do that, and God's not asking us to. To share the gospel. People are screaming for hope, and we have it. So look for those opportunities. Share your faith. If they ask you tough questions, tell them. You can get back to them. You don't have to have all the answers off the top of your head. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer, otherwise I'll go on and on forever. There's, we're just scratching the surface here. And I will also be around in between services if you have questions over by my table. But I'll bow with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time we've had to take a look at the authority of your, God, of your word. It can be trusted from cover to cover. I pray for every person here this morning. I thank you for their attendance. I pray that, God, you would be giving them an opportunity in the next even seven days, God, bring someone across their path that you want them to share with and prompt them in their spirit to share the gospel message and allow the Holy Spirit to do all the heavy lifting. We just thank you for the graciousness and patience you show each one of us each day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.